I'm 27 and was born in 1992. The wars in my lifetime that I've witnessed from afar are Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Kosovo, the list goes on. And yet the war I probably know the most about is the Second World War. And even then, I don't know all of the stories, just a select few from school history lessons. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once... My name is Amy, and as part of the celebrations surrounding the 75th anniversary of D-Day on the 6th of June, Rough Guides are commemorating the liberation of Nazi-occupied Europe with a unique and exceptional guidebook, Travel the Liberation Route Europe. The book looks at specific countries involved in the liberation from Nazi rule at the end of the Second World War. I thought I'd take a look at some of the lesser-heard histories of the Second World War. Keep your eyes peeled for our specially designed liberation route trips Coming soon on roughguides.com. At school, we learn about one particular history of the war. But it's important to remember that history is multiple and the story depends on the side who is telling it. It got me thinking about the different ways countries memorialise those who have died, whether it's a plaque, museum or public commemoration. I'm intrigued by the importance of memorialising. Does it teach us to be more reflective? And in the act of memorialising, who do they miss out? My name is Joe Staines. I'm a freelance editor and writer. I'm of a generation whose parents were alive during the war. I'm, in fact, I'm so old that I even had a brother who was alive during the war. My mother, who was an actor, um, did an ENSA tour. Um, ENSA was the organisation set up for entertaining the troops. And um, she went on um, a tour of a West End play through Europe, following on from the liberation. Writers Joe Staines and Nick Inman co-authored our Travel the Liberation Route guide, which takes us through the various sites in European countries which were under Nazi occupation or were involved in its liberation. Visitors visiting these places today, why is it still important that they take this route, they discover these places? Um, I don't know. Why do you think it's important, Amy? I think it's important so history doesn't repeat itself. But history does repeat itself, doesn't it? commemorating and fixating on the war, what does it achieve? Why are we doing it? When you go to the Imperial War Museum, do our two-minute silence on the 11th of November, what are we thinking about? What are we feeling? The Commonwealth war graves, which are immaculately maintained, as are the US war graves, you know, huge amounts of money spent on their 
creation in the first place. There's one in, there's a US, huge US war grave, which we list in the book in, in Cambridgeshire. And, you know, beautiful white stone, um, immaculate lawns, beautifully kept. And they have a lot of visitors, American visitors. And I think that's to do with family, actually. It's to do with, you know, grandpa, um, has always spoken about this, or his colleagues, you know, died, and there's all that um, connection to people who were, were involved. It's hard to get your head around just how horrific the scale of death was in the Second World War, but anyone who has been to these huge mass graves like the military cemetery in Prague or the Halber Forest Cemetery in Germany, starts to get a sense of the scale of the horror and feels the humbling effect of being confronted by so many tombstones. History is partial and it's subjective, so we tend to read British and American histories about it. We don't read translations of Soviet or Hungarian histories or even, or even German. But of course, they have completely different perspectives. Different countries memorialize the war in different ways. And memorialization is, of course, totally political. Because, you know, you're making a point about the heroism of your own country and its efforts during the war. Since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1989, places like Poland and Czechoslovakia have been removing some of the Soviet memorials. Um, and most of the war memorials in those countries immediately after the war were erected by the Soviets. So they were very much, um, you know, slanted towards the Soviet achievement, the communist achievement. Um, since then, a lot of them have been torn down. There are acts of vandalism in um, Soviet war graves in, in Poland. It made me think more about what is and isn't visible in these cemeteries and memorials. With memorialization, is there also an element of erasure? In World War II, the lines between good and bad were often blurred, with people in occupying countries having to collaborate, sometimes against their will, in order to survive. We'll return to Poland in a moment, but are there things here in the UK that we don't learn about, that we use memorials to mask? During the war, thousands of soldiers from the US arrived in the UK, but while they brought hope for the Allies, they also brought their own internal divisions. Of course, um, in America, the troops were segregated. And when they came to, when the, you know, the millions of troops came over to Britain in the build-up to D-Day, um, suddenly these black troops were not being treated in the same way because, you know, they might be stationed in Wales and there would be complaints by white, this is all quite well documented, um, by uh, white Americans saying, what, what is this, you know, black soldier doing in the pub being served? You know, and so there were all sorts of issues around that. 
With the arrival of the US military, they brought the color bar, which in essence was the same kind of dividing and hateful politics that they were coming to fight against. Cool. Portsmouth, Weymouth, American and British troops would have started their journeys on the south coast of the UK. Jeeps soon became more familiar on local highways than British cars, or anything on the ground because of petrol rationing. Dorset began to resemble a vast military store of tanks, trucks, amphibious vehicles, equipment and arms. White dust covered the hedgerows as convoys ground up road surfaces en route to the woods and fields, which had been turned into huge parking lots to accommodate them. My name is Louisa Adjua Parker. I'm a writer and researcher based in the southwest of England. I wanted to find out more about the African-American soldiers who'd been somewhat written out of this history. And so I got in contact with Louisa, who is a Ghanaian British writer and researcher who has written a book called Dorset's Hidden Histories. The Americans first started arriving in the UK, I think it was late 1942, and they stayed and um, did their training up until 6th of June 1944, which when they left to go to France. And then some of them would have stayed behind after that as well. They left around 1945. So for over sort of three years, they would have been billeted all around parts of the southwest and also East Anglia and other parts of the UK. I first became interested in the African-American GIs when I was doing some sort of more general black history research, um, which went back sort of over four or five hundred years. And the black GIs was sort of obviously, you know, obviously an important part of the history locally. The African-American GIs came to the UK with the American army in the run-up to D-Day um, to train for the D-Day landing. So they were mainly focused around the sort of ports and the beach areas so they could train in preparation for, for landing in France. Around 10% of the American army at that time was meant to be African-Americans. They weren't really armed at this point during the war, and they weren't on the front line. So they were sort of keeping it going by doing all the sort of work behind it. And they were kept segregated when they were here as well. So they brought the colour bar and segregation with them to, to the UK. When you think of Dorset, maybe what comes to mind is Lulworth Cove, Durdle Door, or the White Portland Stone Cliff Faces. But perhaps you don't imagine Jim Crow racial segregation laws against the backdrop of World War II. Our government sort of felt it was in the best interest to, um, to try and keep, go along with the segregation and keep them separate. They would have had separate dances, separate um, social events, and some of the cinemas would have separate seating for black and white soldiers. But I think perhaps the, the most significant change would have been the, the actual face of the country was changed with the sudden presence of thousands of young African men, um, particularly in the rural areas of England, where you know, they hadn't, it was very, very white and there wouldn't have been many people from different ethnic backgrounds, particularly in Dorset, where I did my research. I believe this was the first time that Dorset has had a large black population. Um, so over the years there have been sort of smaller numbers of people from different countries and so on, but this would have been the first time you'd have visibly, visibly seen the face of the county changed. This is the G.I. So I think the African-Americans, and the Americans in general, led to quite a lot of cultural changes taking place in the UK. So for example, um, American dances such as the jive and the boogie-woogie replaced the waltz and the foxtrot. 
Rootledy toot, jump in your suit, make a salute. Voot, after you wash and dress. New sayings sprung up like got any gum charm um, and the Americans shared like chewing gum and sweets which they called candies. Local people learned to play new sports like baseball and they also enjoyed listening to what were known as Negro spirituals in many of the, lo in many of the churches. Louisa collected testimonies from some of the elderly people living in the area who remember their time as children during the war. My name is Richard Brooks. I am now 76 years old and when I go back 70 years to the age of six. God's going gone from six to seven. The first American soldiers entered into the area. My name is Joyce Morris. Um, I was Joyce Parker as a child living at San Andreas, St. Dorsey. When the Americans came, I was eight years old um, and uh, very excited to see what was going on. All these lovely, cheerful looking young men hanging off their lorries and things, and I think perhaps more especially as children seeing the, the sweets, <laughs> the, the goodies coming off the lorries. At the top of the village, there was a con con congregation church. Now, each Sunday, the soldiers would gather in that church because it was simply closer to their religion from way back home. Each Sunday we would go down there and the American soldiers would come in and they would be on one part of the church, on one part of the wing of the church and segregation as they were used to back home had to apply in this church where we were. Of the, the men would have been very young, sort of, you know, perhaps as young as 16. So they were just, they were boys, really, and they would have possibly left siblings behind and, you know, been missing their families. So they really, you know, they really engaged with these, with these young children at the time. So I think they left a lot of, a lot of happy memories in, in Dorset. They would have arrived in a very beautiful county with lots of rolling fields and lots of countryside and beautiful beaches along stretches of coastline with glittering sea and stones and sand. Yeah, they'd have come to a very beautiful place. And for, for the men who died in the, during the war, when they got to France, their last memories may have been spending time in this beautiful county with people who accepted them for being human. And it was exactly this acceptance that the Allies were fighting for, witnessing firsthand the effects of fascist policies in the occupied countries and persecuted people of Europe. America's role in a war against Aryan politics would go on to influence its own long walk to freedom in the form of the civil rights movement. Poland was one of the countries worst affected by the Nazi invasion, 
with a number of concentration camps casting a dark stain on the country's history. Poland, September 1939. The German foe begins its ruthless march of conquest and sets the stage for World War II. Poland's 34 million inhabitants, crushed, scattered and enslaved. After the Warsaw Uprising in 1944, the city was effectively razed to the ground by the Nazis. Joe Staines told us about the legacy the occupation has in Poland today. The, the war is usually marked as beginning with the um, German invasion of Poland, the Nazi invasion of Poland. Um, a few days after that occurred, in September 1939, the Russians invaded Poland. So the Russians were the bad guys, along with the Nazis. The um, Germans invaded broadly from the west and the Russians from the east, and they basically just carved up the country between them. In Poland, they targeted the intelligentsia and um, Catholic priests, lawyers, and they basically, you know, exterminated huge numbers of them. So the Poles suffered extraordinarily. Obviously, Polish Jews suffered even, even more so. If you were caught aiding the protection of Jews, you would be instantly executed, but not just you would be instantly executed your entire family would be instantly executed. Poland has been very, very keen to memorialize the war. And there have been some fantastic new museums and new commemorative sites. In Gdansk, there's a, a new museum of the Second World War. They opened a museum which placed the history of the war in Poland and the history of the Second World War in a broader context of global conflicts and, and wars worldwide. Its director and um, assistants were fired um, by the Minister of Culture shortly after the museum opened. I think that they were sacked on the grounds that the museum wasn't patriotic enough. How you memorialise things is a very contentious subject. When we look back at the history of the Second World War, it's important that we remember it was called a world war for a reason. It wasn't just a war fought in Europe, but everywhere and by many people. By looking at these histories through a wider narrative lens, we recognise the complexity of both the realities and atrocities committed on all sides. It's not about celebrating. It, it, it is about, yeah, it is about remembering. And I think people remember for a whole host of different reasons. Well, you do learn from history, but it doesn't prevent you repeating it. We are sort of retelling stories around the Second World War and retelling the histories. I think it's really important that we retell these stories, that we record them, because the generations who remember the black soldiers in the UK are sadly dying out now, so these stories will be lost if we don't record them for future generations.
It's an important part of all our history. Joe is right to say that history does repeat itself, and perhaps inevitably so. But I think it's important that, as Louisa says, we retell and record these stories before it's too late and use them to pay attention to the world around us. Our exceptional guidebook, Travel the Liberation Route Europe, is out in July. You can plan your own trip along the route using our tailor-made trip service on roughguides.com. Thanks to Joe Staines and Louisa Adioa Parker for taking the time to talk to us, to Femi Oriogan Williams for producing the episode, and everyone at Rough Guides headquarters for all their help. In the next episode, we'll be looking at adventure writing and taking a trip back in time to Shanghai.